electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly Evans today. And here's what's ahead. Your money once again under a little bit of pressure. The latest read on labor shows the job market is not slowing down. And that means the Fed likely won't either. So what comes now with your investments? One of our guests says, well, you might want to look overseas for opportunities. Speaking of international, UBS out with a list of stocks poised to benefit from what Chinese consumers want now. How do they know? Well, they surveyed a lot of them. And the analyst behind that survey is here with his picks. And here comes Netflix. From what to watch to out of position, we'll get you ready for the big report after the bell. That's all coming up in the next hour. Let us begin with the markets and your money and... A lot of little 49ers red on the screen with Dom Chu. We just need a little gold to go along with it, and I'll be be happy, as can be, with a win over the Cowboys. Anyway, uh, to your point, Brian, the the markets have been down, and they've been down all day long. The S&P 500 currently sitting just about 38.98, down 29.30 points. To give you an idea of the trading range, at the highs of the session, we were down 12 points, 12 handles for the S&P, down roughly 43 at the low. So tilted a little bit more towards the low side of things. The Dow down 220-some points, 33,075, two-thirds of 1% to the downside. 1% declines for the Nasdaq Composite, 109 points to the downside. That technology trade still kind of weighing a little bit on that so far today. One thing to watch for, speaking of economic data, housing data out this morning. Now, it was a more mixed picture on the housing starts front. Saw some gains in single-family homes, but some declines in multifamily. But it was building permits that some traders are keying a little bit more on today. Those building permits, they are highly volatile. We will say that. But they fell at an annual rate to the lowest pace since going all the way back to May of 2020 in the wake of the virus pandemic. That's taking down names like Pulte, Toll Brothers, Lennar, also housing products companies like Deck Making Company, Trex, and also Home Depot as well. You can see those. And by the way, Pulte and Toll Brothers both got initiated with outperform ratings at Oppenheimer today. So a very mixed picture, but still downside for the housing stocks. And then the stock of the day, Brian, you mentioned it, it's Netflix. Now, keep in mind that Netflix shares are lower on the day with the rest of the market. But if you look to the lows that we saw in May over here to where we are right now, this stock has, in essence, doubled. So how much good news is priced in with the stock that's doubled off its lows in May? And by the way, Brian, the options market right now is currently pricing in what could be a 9-plus percent move up or down in the stock post-earnings report. And if you want to dig further, that's actually less volatile than it's been over the last eight quarters, so it could be some fireworks for Netflix. Brian, back over to you. Bringing the heat there and guaranteeing a 49ers victory this weekend, Dom Chu. That's what I, that's what I heard. I didn't get So here's what I would say. Uh-oh. I'm an optimist. As a Bay Area native, I have to be an optimist. But a realist. About the Niners. But a realist. The Cowboys are a tough team, but I think the Niners pull it. There you go. Dom Chu, come on over. We're going to talk not football. I wish we would. We're going to talk something else. Because with the early 2023 rally losing steam, here at home, our next guest says maybe now is the time that you want to look for opportunities abroad. He's also got a hot take on still hot inflation. Let's bring in Andres Casilla Amaya, Zoe Financial CEO. You sent around this really interesting 
survey, which, by the way, Dom, I was going to make at the RBI tomorrow, but you're going to be doing the 5 a.m. tomorrow again, I just found out. So yes, and that means you're going to be doing the 1 p.m. I'll be again? here, and we're just doing – anyway, Six, yeah, yes. there we go. So I was going to make it the RBI for tomorrow morning, Andres, because it's fascinating, which is, on average, it takes about two and a half years to bring inflation under control. And, and research affiliates did the number. They went back. They looked at the 70s and 80s and stuff like that. Is that what you're anticipating, that we could be in for sort of a fight against inflation for another two years? Well, the question is, is this an average type situation, right? And I don't think it is, right? The Fed did hike interest rates at a pace that we had not seen before. But I think it is optimistic to expect to inflation over the next, call it six to 12 months to go back to two and 3% and we're all just gonna, you know, champagne flowing type scenario. So I do think there's still some disconnect here of what the market think is going to happen based on the recent trend of inflation versus where it might land right by the end of this year. Yeah, okay, so what does that mean for our markets? What does it mean for overseas markets? Because by the way, inflation, not just here. UK's got worse inflation than we do. Europe is worse inflation in most countries than we do. So where are we looking around the world that may be a better deal than the good old US of A? Yeah, I'll caveat first, right? This doesn't mean sell all US stocks. If you're a US investor and you own dollars, right, you're gonna own US stocks. But if you're looking for that next incremental investment, I think emerging market stocks do look appealing specifically now with the reopening of China, right? Especially Asian stocks are going to be leveraged towards that kind of reignition of, of, of growth. Sure, you'll get some inflation, but you also will get some growth. So what's interesting about this is Andres brings up a great point with regard to some of the outside opportunities. If you, t- if you look at a chart of some of the ETFs that track some of these emerging markets stocks, the, you know, the EEM is one that a lot of folks use out there. If you Which look is at, mostly Asia, though. It is. But, but I guess the macro trend that you have to look at is what's happened with dollar strength. That has abated a lot over the course of the last several months. Now, if you take a look at the EEM chart versus a dollar index chart, what you'll see is that the move higher on the right-hand side of the screen for those emerging market stocks has coincided with a decline in the value of the U.S. dollar. So as you talk about whether or not there's dollar strength or dollar weakness, emerging market stocks or not, you got to look at some of the macro picture with rates and the value of the dollar as opposed to what's happening domestically here in the U.S. And that's the tricky part about investing overseas. It's one thing if you buy a stock in the country with the currency where it is. So if you, you, buy, you buy the local L'Oreal shares in Paris versus buying the ADR, which then might have currency impact because you're buying it in a non-native currency to that company. That's absolutely true. And I think you are making a bet not only on the stocks, but on the currency. So I think that's dead on. from Which is hard. That's the most liquid market in the world. History is littered with people who've gotten their faces ripped off (laughs) trying to predict currency moves. I would also say that history shows that the dollar doesn't go up forever, right? And it's been in a pretty good run for the last six or seven years. By the way, one of the biggest factors that drives a dollar is relative economic growth. 
So if U.S. economic growth is decelerating and then you're going to see the rest of the world growth reaccelerating, that could be bad news for the dollar, right? Which would give you kind of a double whammy, a potential opportunity for emerging market stocks. I, I guess the, the other thing you have to look at is emerging markets, uh, to Andre's point, is, is a great place to look. But if you want to talk about the relative performance, there's also a view out there, uh, Andre's, that, that, that Europe is positioned for better growth than the U.S. on a relative basis. So that might actually mean that developed market economies in Europe might have better markets as well than the U.S. here or not. Dominic, what's the what's the name of the quarterback of the 49ers? Oh, it's Brock Purdy, man. It's Brock Purdy. Purdy. So all I'm saying is you need a Purdy in your portfolio, right? And uh, it's hard to find here in the U.S. I like it. I I like this. And by the way, you must have read my predictions. One of them was Europe outperforms the United States, even with all their problems. Let's just, want, let's just hope the weather holds up. Well, the, that, weather's been, the weather's been everything. Because that's been a big part of that story. Uh, ironically, warmer weather, probably brought on by climate change, is saving Europe from their energy disaster that we've been talking about. I'm not going to go down that road. That's, no, that's a whole different show, yeah. man. Yeah. A whole different segment. Andres, thank you very much. Dom, thank you. That's a very nice tie, by the way, Dom. Thank you. If you're on the radio, you're really really missing out. If you're on the radio, you can't see the tie. (laughs) All right, from one international opportunity to another, with China's reopening underway, UBS surveyed consumers in China on their travel plans. And get this, 85%. That's like almost all the percent plan to travel outside of China within one year. I mean, can you blame them after nearly three years of lockdowns? Anyway, if this is true, it is good news for travel and leisure stocks, which you're already seeing nice gains over the last month. Let's get a closer look at some of the names that might benefit the most with Robin Farley, leisure and lodging analyst at UBS. Robin, how many people did you survey for this? More than two. Uh, our, our evidence lab, uh, which is part of UBS, surveyed about 1,000 uh, consumers in China to ask them about their travel plans now that it's reopening. So we, we, 1,000 is a pretty good number to, uh, to have talked to. Yeah, okay, so we just gave the, the macro headline, 85% want to travel. Well, where are they going? Where do they want to spend their money? They're coming back to the States. Who's gonna win? So, so first thing that was interesting about it is, although, as you said, over 80% will travel in the next year, only 13% are gonna do that immediately, right? So it's gonna take a little time before that benefit comes to the US. First, it's gonna be domestic travel within China and then Europe, and then the US is, is, is probably after that. So there will be a little bit of time um, at, for, for that recovery to pick up. I will say that if you look at hotel companies though, like Marriott and Hilton, um, Marriott had about nine or 10% of their rooms, about nine or 10% of their earnings um, in China before the pandemic. So they will benefit from the domestic travel within China, even before travelers come to the US. Hilton was about 5%, so they will also benefit to some degree as well. And their footprint, um, it's about 25% of Marriott's footprint. Things that are under construction in China are planned to be built, um, and even greater, about 30% for Hilton. So so there's there's some immediate benefit, even from the domestic travel there, and then, and then obviously the longer-term growth. What about the casinos? Macau, Las Vegas Sands, Wynn, Contessa Brewer talks about them all the time. Yes, you know, clear benefit to to the uh, operators in Macau as those borders open up. And again, we think it'll take some time, um, but we actually raised estimates this morning for revenue in Macau. We've been saying before now that mass market revenues in Macau would recover by 2024. Now it looks like it's going to happen. Um, the rate of recovery in 2023 will be a little bit higher. We prefer LVS to win there because LVS has the biggest mass market footprint in Macau. And even though the VIP 
business is not going to recover there. Uh, that was only about 7% of EBITDA for LVS. Wind Resorts, it was 25%. And that VIP part of the business is going to take longer to come back. But the mass market, we expect to be fully recovered by 2024. And LVS would be the biggest beneficiary there. LVS, maybe the biggest beneficiary. Marriott and Hilton from those domestic trends. Because, hey, there's only so much airline capacity. And probably like here, Robin, I'm guessing airfares are going to go just insane for the first year and then cool off. Robin Farley, UBS, great stuff. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, Marriott, Hilton, LVS. All right, on deck, Netflix and ill. Sales seeing grown at a snail's pace, but does that mean you have to avoid the stock? We'll tie the two together, but first, the Texas Bond King. And one of our favorite guests, Gilbert Garcia, joins in to weigh in on the Fed, rates, and more as the exchange rolls on right after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Dow's down 183. Meantime, Federal Reserve Vice Chair Lael Brainerd is speaking now on the economy. Steve Leisman has the headlines. Steve. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Lael Brainerd, the Fed Vice Chair, saying inflation has declined in recent months. But she says that despite the inflation moderation and moderation in the economy, rates need to be sufficiently restrictive for some time. A slower pace of rate increases, she says, will give the Fed the time it needs to assess the data more closely. Inflation has declined, she said, but it remains high and it's going to take time to get down to the 2% goal. Financial conditions, she notes, have tightened considerably. She looks at the bond spread. She looks at real yields. They've all come down. Recent data, she says, shows significant weakening in manufacturing. Further moderation, she says, also in consumer spending. It's one of the first Fed officials to really take note of the lousy data we got yesterday. Uh, She says the drag on growth and jobs from monetary policy is likely to increase this year. Recent declines in average weekly hours and temporary help workers suggest the labor market is cooling and labor supply appears likely, however, to remain constrained. Wages, she says, are not driving inflation in a 1970s style wage price spiral. And she says there are tentative signs indeed that wage growth is moderating. Housing inflation, she expects to cool in the third quarter of this year. And then in a way that is a potential pushback on some of the ideas out there among other Fed officials, including the Fed chair. She says bringing down wages are not the only way to cure that problem of high core service inflation. She says there's other ways to do it, including with a broader decline of other aspects of inflation. That could bring down the part that the Fed chair Powell is so concerned about, core service costs. Continued moderation, she says, in demand could cool the labor market without significant job losses. Brian, this is... 
I got to say, it starts off as a very dovish speech, and there's a lot of dovish stuff in there that makes you think she's going to conclude with a more dovish outlook on policy. She doesn't really have that in there, but she's one of the first Fed uh, speakers in recent days to take account of the bad data we've had recently, and also to be looking at inflation on a three-month annualized basis, which, as you know, has come down quite considerably. She doesn't mention 5% or higher in there the way other Fed officials have. Uh, and I don't know if this characterizes any kind of change on the part of the Fed. She is one of the, the, the three core Fed officials, uh, Brainerd and Powell and the New York Fed uh, president, uh, John Williams, or the kind of troika there that are the, th- uh, the three people we watch probably the most closely of all. Mm. Um, but she's definitely on the dovish side of things. And the question, Brian, is whether or not this means a more dovish policy, not specifically indicated in this, um, in this speech. Yesterday, I tweeted out something about inflation. I forgot to put the word rate after inflation, so I took some crud on the Internet because it was like, no, you just basically said okay, because I said I was just coming back from the grocery store, and I tweeted out basically like, just because people say inflation's coming down, when you buy stuff, it doesn't look like it to the average person. So can you explain the disconnect right. between, because a lot of our viewers are like, I'm not seeing inflation coming down. Eggs are six bucks. They've got their housing, used cars, maybe down a, a touch, but still hot. Can you explain the difference between the data and the real world? Well, there's two things, Brian. The first is these sort of, what are you going to call them, marquee items. And and I think gas prices, nobody knows better than you, Brian, are one of those marquee items that dramatically color our view of prices. I think eggs have recently been one of those marquee items, which has been driven up, especially by what's happening with the avian flu. And those price increases have been dramatic. In addition, people are, are thinking about what prices used to be last year, and they still see them higher. And indeed, they are higher. What we're talking about here, Brian, and the reason why there's a disconnect is because it's this wonky notion of a second derivative. What we're looking at, what Fed policy members are looking at, what the street is looking at, is the rate of change of the rate of change. Is inflation now 5% Mm. or is it 3%? So prices are still going up, but they're going up two percentage points less And it's very hard to go to the supermarket and look at your bill and say, oh, it's up two percentage points less than it was last month. The point you just made is the point I tried to make unsuccessfully, so then I tried to remake it, which is, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I'm saying? And, of course, the Internet, so take it for what it's worth. But the idea that the inflation data is coming down, but that doesn't mean prices are falling. It simply means the rate of increase is coming down for most things. Exactly. And you make a great point, Brian, because the question becomes whether or not we actually have some deflation, some correction of some of these things. And I want to point out one of the relevant aspects to this for investors is something that Brainerd points out in her speech today, which is this notion of profit margin. She notes that retail markups have been a part of what's been driving inflation. And she expects some of those retail markups to come down When an investor hears retail markups coming down, they probably hear profit margins declining. And it is an interesting question for the future, for the level of earnings, for the amount of earnings, for the rate of earnings, for profit margins, as to whether or not 
those mm. profit margins come down and whether or not prices actually fall. It is a big part of the debate that Bob Bassani is talking about, that we're talking about more broadly here on CNBC for the future here, is what is the story yep. here in terms of bringing down profit margins and will prices actually fall rather than just the rate of change of prices falling? Because there's a big swath of people out there that believe almost all inflation is caused mm. by corporate greed. They might have a point. We'll see. Steve Leisman, good stuff. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. All right. Let's bring in Gilbert Garcia, managing partner, Garcia Hamilton Associates, and a CNBC contributor listening in. I probably should have kept Steve around for this because he knows more about it. But you get my point, Gilbert, which is that, and I don't want to throw stones politically, but there, there are some high-level politicians who come out and on Twitter or whatever who say, Prices are coming down. Inflation's coming down. Prices aren't coming down. The rate of increase is coming down. And the Fed's got to be looking at that and trying to figure out what to do. What would you do? Sure. First, there's two different things. One is inflation means prices are rising. But remember, that means prices are rising. Deflation means prices are declining. So we are still in an inflationary environment. But the amount of inflation is rising at a slower pace. That's the key. So going back, what would I do? I think the Fed is making a terrible mistake. I think they should already stop raising rates and they should give the economy a glide path to let all these big rate increases filter into the economy. We've raised rates in very big chunks in a very short period of time. And by focusing on labor and wages, those are more lagging indicators and they should be looking at forward yeah. indicators whether it's money supply, whether it's leading indicators. And if they did that, they would recognize they need to take their foot off the raising rate pedal. I love the magic of TV. I said we probably should have kept Steve around. And guess what? He reappears on the giant monitor. It's like pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Steve, jump, jump in on this because you, there's a lot of people that are in Gilbert's camp, which is would it kill him to wait a couple of meetings and just see how things shake out? Because if you kill inflation by destroying the economy, is that a win? No, it's not. I don't think it's the intention of the Federal Reserve. You know, um, <clears throat> Gilbert can, can talk in ways that I don't necessarily talk as a reporter. I will point out that I have, have noted quite a bit in my reporting that the Federal Reserve has not taken account of the change in the data. We've had a series of really lousy data points ISM services were terrible. ISM manufacturing was down. Yesterday's manufacturing report, yesterday's retail sales report, all should make, have made you, if you're a Fed official, sort of sit up a little bit taller in your chair and take a look around and say, maybe I don't have this exactly right. The Fed is not purposely trying to tank the economy, but it sees uh, moderation in economic activity as a key way to bring down inflation. And what's been notable to me is the Fed has not been ta not taken account until this Brainerd speech. And that's why I think the Brainerd speech is important. It's the first one that says to me they're aware of the very things that Gilbert's talking about. What Brainerd does not do is take that extra step that Gilbert just did and said, that should change my monetary policy. And if you will, very quickly, Brian, take a look at the spread of officials and their 2023 rate forecasts. 17 of 19 are above 5%, mm -hmm. only two are below. So if even if Brainerd is a dove, she's still among that group. She could only be in the 490 and higher 
for all of 2023 or for ending 2023. That's the doviest person that could be on the field. I'm not saying that, sir. I don't know it. But if she is a dove, then mm. all she is is 490. So there's nobody on the Fed that is in Gilbert's camp here and this idea that, hey, maybe we should yeah. be rethinking how far we go. Gilbert, jump in. Yeah. And the other thing, too, Steve, is I really think they're losing some of the basic fundamentals of focus on things like money supply growth. If you look at money supply growth, it is now growing at a negative rate, whether it's year over year, whether it's high frequency, three month over three month. And we haven't seen these sorts of numbers since really the depression. And I really think they should be focusing on that and realizing that the correlation between money supply growth and about 12 months or so the economy is so tight and so high that they should realize we need to take our foot off yeah. the gas pedal now, stop raising rates. Because if they do, and I know we didn't use this term, but if they do wreck the economy, I'm just being an alarmist here. If they do that, it'll take so long to recover if businesses go out of business and people lose jobs and people yeah. getting retrained. They need to be very, very careful, and they should stop raising rates now. And I'm going to, Steve, thank you, Gilbert. Steve, I'm going to make a final comment to you, and you can comment on my comment, which is we talk about inflation as a, you know, producer prices, consumer prices, used cars, underwear, whatever it is. There is an underlying inflationary aspect to higher interest rates. If I've got $10,000 on a credit card at zero percent from a balance transfer and suddenly now it's 22 percent or my mortgage is an arm and it goes up is any of the interest rate impact it in any of the inflationary data steve did that question make any sense at all well are you talking about the interest income that is earned by people is no, that what you're amount, asking is there if, an inflationary uh, the, impact to no that? the amount of so let's say let's say your gasoline bill Oh, goes down $100 yeah. a month because gas prices have come down. That's great. But your interest payments have gone up 300 So therefore, you pass along higher prices? Therefore, there's an inflationary aspect to the economy, which is hurting consumers, but I don't think that's captured in the CPI or the PPI, the interest charge of well, the, the higher the, living cost. Yes, yes, that's that's definitely out there. That that is uh, incorporated, I believe, in the housing data. Um, but I, I want to get to one other point here, which is I don't know if you have my uh, uh, in the back there, my Fed uh, market gap here, which is there's a lot of people. In fact, the whole market is priced in a way that agrees with Gilbert Garcia. And when I look at this number here, the gap is 73 basis points. There are 72 right now. We update this frequently. And look across the top there, Brian. The mm -hmm. Fed is at 5.13%, your average Fed official. The futures market is at 441 now. That's three-quarter point hike disagreement, not for next year, which was the story in December, but that's this year now, Brian. And so there's broad agreement on Gilbert that the Fed... And, and the real issue here to me is the Fed made a mistake by being all on one side of the boat last year on the yes, transitory side yes. and i and and it, it appears as if groupthink or i worry that groupthink has once again taken over the federal reserve and what is striking to me having covered the fed for 20 plus years is the absence of opinion about the outlook well, it's what go ahead quickly give yeah. very quickly Real the producers quick. are going to yeah. have I, my I, i've had a NAS conference in philadelphia thank you for having us I really think the other shoe to drop that's really going to make people start waking up and say, my goodness, they need to cut rates, is housing. 
because housing is starting to roll over, starting to slow down rapidly. Yeah. Prices are declining. It's because the affordability is not there anymore because prices went up too far, too fast, and incomes did not keep up. And that's going to be the next thing that's going to be hit hitting the news and the headlines. Well, that's a lot bigger than the stock market. Let's hope you're wrong. You're probably not. But hey, gas prices are down a buck, so everything's fine. Gilbert, what's eating Gilbert Garcia? We know. It's the Fed. Steve Leisman, thank you very much. All right, on deck, we're talking a different kind of debt, the national debt, why we may be in for a big-time fight, and could we really actually default on the U.S. debt? Elon Moy up next with that. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Across France, hundreds of thousands of people are protesting against government plans to raise the retirement age there from 62 to 64. Nationwide strikes are also hitting transport, schools, other public services. President Macron says reforms are needed to save the pension system. Alex Baldwin's lawyer says the manslaughter charge against his client for a death on the set of the movie Rust represents, quote, a terrible miscarriage of justice. A weapons specialist on the movie was also charged. Her lawyer says the charges were the result of a flawed investigation. And remember the New Jersey deli whose parent company briefly had a $100 million market valuation, had annual sales of just $40,000? Well, stock manipulation charges were filed against three people involved, shockingly. Two were arrested last September. The third was just taken into custody in Thailand. Peter Coker Jr. was to believe, believed to be on the lam in Hong Kong before the FBI and Thai officials tracked him down in a Thai resort hotel. So much for a deli worth hundreds of millions, Brian. I went there. Actually, you did? Three years ago. Stopped in. I was the only person there. Got to say, good sub. Good. Good sub. Tell right. got the was st- it worth the $100 million? No. I got no. the stink eye, too, because I thought that because that's when CBC started poking around. Tyler, thank you very much. See you, man. Which is why I went. All right. Still ahead. Netflix on deck. The stock up double digits in the past month, down a little bit right now. What can we expect with their numbers tonight? Will we have ever seen Stranger Things? We're back after this. Welcome back. Let's talk Netflix. Shares down a little bit today, about one one and a quarter percent. All ahead, though, the earnings tonight after the bell. Shares really have made quite the turnaround since their May low, nearly doubling in price off that low made not quite a year ago. And the street will be keeping an eye on user numbers overall. But this is the first quarter that we will get any kind of read on Netflix's ad-supported tier. Let's dive in further with Ben Swinburne. He is Morgan Stanley Managing Director, head of U.S. Media research. How much will that ad supported tier matter to this quarter, or is it just kind of a curious sideshow? Maybe somewhere in between, Brian. I think it'll have an impact, but probably not dramatic. I think the bigger factor and what we expect to be a strong quarter relative to their guidance is actually the content strength they had during the fourth quarter, particularly among some of their bigger English language titles. The ad tier, I think, is more about 
you know, the next 12, 24 months than Q4. And what kind of subscriber number would Morgan Stanley be happy with? What kind of subscriber number do you think the market will be happy with? Well, they guided to four and a half million net ads. And if you look at the analysis, at least that we've been able to do around some of the hours consumed uh, that uh, on certain shows, particularly Wednesday, Emily in Paris, season three, uh, certainly suggests they had a very strong engagement quarter. And engagement correlates highly with churn. So lower churn means better net ads. You throw in some benefit from the ad tier. My guess is people are expecting them to beat uh, uh, guidance by maybe a million or so net ads, something in the five to six million range. You guys have an equal weight, but your target's 300. The stock's $22 above it. It's at 322. So if your clients own it, are they just sitting on it right now, but not adding more? Or They're not selling, are they? I, yeah. I mean, the way we look at Netflix is the risk reward's pretty balanced here, hence the equal weight. We're at 30 times forward earnings. I think one of the things that's maybe a little less exciting to talk about, but worth highlighting to investors is just the impact of currency. You know, most of Netflix revenues come from outside the U.S., and the majority of their expenses are in the U.S. So currency was a huge headwind last year. But if you look at when the dollar peaked, sort of late September to today, Netflix stock is up 30% versus the S&P up five. So that's played a big role in the recovery. We worry that a lot of success is already priced in here, uh, which is why we're a little more cautious as we look out over the next 12, 24 months. Ben Swinburne, Netflix, those numbers out after the bell. Ben, we appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. Sure. All right, let's stick with Netflix, but turn to some of the action in options. That'd be a good name for a show, Options Action. All right, your next guest says they're implying an undersized move, at least for Netflix, after the bell, meaning their expectations of lower risk, perhaps, in Netflix's release. For more on where the tech sector overall may be headed is Chris Harvey, equity analyst at Wells Fargo. And I know you don't talk individual names, Chris, but earlier Dom Chu was saying there was an implied 9% move either way on Netflix. That doesn't sound small to me, 9% either way. No, no, it's not a it's not a, a small move. But but really what we want to talk about is not so much the one individual reaction, but but the real reaction over time. And, and what we've seen over time is, is a much more traditional reaction to earnings. What we're seeing is beats. When you have a beat, they are reacting positively. When you have a miss, they are re- reacting pretty, pretty negatively. That wasn't true last quarter about this time. And, and so what we're seeing is, is a more rational approach to, to earnings at this point. We've seen a lot of fear mongering coming into earnings. People expecting margins to come down, mm. or, um, uh, greatly um, numbers being slashed, so on and so forth. We do think margins are going to be compressed. We do think numbers are going to come down, but we think there's been too much fear mongering and, and people are expecting too much too soon. And, and so once again, what we think we're going to get by the end of this earnings season is a situation where things aren't as bad as feared. They're not great, but they're just not as bad as feared. Okay. Well, you just heard us talk about the, the stock, the, the price, target price of 300 and kind of just said, listen, not much we can do with the stock right now. Your, well, Wells Fargo's S&P 500 estimate is 4020. That's about 3% from where we are now. So if that's the case, it sounds like you guys are kind of saying that most of the gains for the year may have already been made. And it's like January 18th. Yeah, again, I, I don't I don't particularly comment being the head of equity strategy. I don't comment on an individual stock. I leave that to our fundamental analysts. 
I, I know he's constructive on the name. He's got more positive no, on I'm, it. I'm sorry, I meant the S&P 500. Your, your target on the S&P 500 is oh. 4,020, but the, the S&P 500 is at 3,900. It's only 3% move. So I'm just wondering, are most of the gains for the year already baked in? What are we going to do for the next 11 months, Chris? <laughs> so, so, <laughs> right, I, I think there's a little bit of miscommunication. What we've been saying is in the short term, we think fair value for the S&P 500 is in and around 4,000. Our year-end price target is 4,200, and we do think at some point we're going to get down to 3,400, right? So we think the year is going to end on a positive note, but we're going to have a lot of volatility between here and there. And, and what we're saying in, in the here and the now is we got to 4,000. looks like the market needs to take a breather. You had rates go down pretty aggressively here. You've had risk being well bought. You've had a lot of short covering. And now we think, you know, before we have the blackout with the Fed, you're going to get a little bit more hawkish rhetoric. And so it makes sense that the market should probably trade sideways to down in the short term. But and we'll have a lot of volatility before year end. But ultimately, we do end higher. We think it's forty two hundred. OK, so de- but could trade down to thirty four hundred. So help me That's out. Right. I'm a little of a ding dong. What's the difference between fair value at forty yeah. twenty and price target of forty two hundred? Yeah, so, so our fair value is just based on where we see interest rates right now, based on where we see credit spreads right now, based on where we see the risk premium, where do we think the equity market should trade in the short term? Short term meaning next couple of weeks, um, next month or so, not so much a 12-month price target, right? And, and typically what happens is as rates go down, credit spreads tighten, that fair value goes up and vice versa. We start to see credit spreads widen, rates go up, then that fair fair value goes down. And it's just something that we use with a lot of our traders and, and some of our short-term players just to say where we think the market is um, from a, a, a trading point of view, not okay. so much that long-term 12-month point of view. Got it. But we could trade down to 3400 I think that's that's maybe the takeaway. And maybe, by the way, good if you're playing in the options market. Chris Harvey, really appreciate your views. Thank you. All right, coming up, it is official. The United States, folks, we've officially hit our debt limit. The Treasury has already started its, quote, extraordinary measures. We'll have the latest on the spending showdown and whether or not America could truly end up defaulting on its debt. Welcome back. The Treasury's so-called extraordinary measures are underway. Secretary Janet Yellen sending Speaker House uh, Kevin McCarthy a letter outlining the U.S.'s first move to avoid a debt default. Alon Moy joining us now with that story. Alon, unbelievable time. Extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. Where do we stand right now? Yeah, that's right, Brian. Secretary Yellen told Congress that the deadline for raising the debt limit is a moving target. The letter states, quote, the period of time that extraordinary measures may last is subject to considerable uncertainty, including the challenges of forecasting the payments and receipts of the U.S. government months into the future. Now, Yellen had previously projected that Treasury could keep paying the bills at least through early June. Notably, in today's letter, she did not provide a time frame, but urged Congress to act quickly. Still, Republicans and Democrats continue to point fingers at each other today. GOP Representative Scott Perry tweeted, enough is enough. We must use every opportunity to rein in out of control spending. The debt ceiling fight is that opportunity. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, top Senate Republican Mitch McConnell tried to turn down the temperature and predicted lawmakers would eventually reach a deal. In the end, I think the important thing to remember is that America must never default on its debt. It never has and never will. 
but we'll end up in some kind of negotiation with the administration over what are the circumstances or conditions under which the debts are going to be raised. Now, Brian, we're hearing very different messages from Republicans in the House and in the Senate, which suggests there's still a long way to go before compromise. Back to you. All right, what's the way out here? Is there an exit strategy for this? Give us some good news, Alon. I can't say it's good news, but folks are talking about a lot of different possible escape hatches. One of those, um, Senator Joe Manchin mentioned earlier today or speaking to CNBC in Davos, and he referenced something called the Trust Act, which would set up these rescue committees that would look at government trust funds in order to revamp the way that they work and relook at spending. That's something that Republicans and Democrats might be able to get on board with to say that they're taking taking America's spending problems seriously. There's also another bipartisan proposal that would give the president the power to raise the debt ceiling and allow Congress to just um, veto that or allow Congress to disapprove Mm. of that. So there's a lot of different ways that this could go. But the problem is that all of those ways are really complicated. And when you're up against the deadline, complicated is not your friend. It's like kids. You did it. No, you did it. You know what? They both did it. Neither party is innocent in this debt fight. Elon, thank you very much. All right, coming up, the energy sector more than doubling in the past two years, and Dan Pickering says this could be a three-peat type of year, but you got to change up some of the players. We'll be joined by Amrita Sen of Energy Aspects. That is next. Uh, welcome back. A pretty volatile day for crude oil. It's currently higher right now. In fact, back above 80 bucks a barrel. It's up 7% in the past month. And that has really boosted one group, the oil services stocks. Remember, energy overall was the best performer the past two years in a row, and the OIH ETF keeps breaking out to new highs this year. Are we poised for a three-peat? We're joined now by Dan Pickering, Chief Investment Officer Pickering Energy Partners, and Amrita Sen, co-founder and head of research at Energy Aspects. Amrita, I'm going to start with you. By the way, big shout-out from some folks, the CEOs of oil companies down at the Golden, they also, they love your work and, and reading what you write. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, oil's caught a bid lately, kind of quietly. Where's the next directional move for oil? Directionally, it should continue to head higher for the simple reason that China's reopening. Every asset class, you've been talking about this as well, continues to move higher. Somehow, people forgot, well, the oil traders forgot about it, right? So oil's been the laggard, but it is time for it to move higher. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be a straight line. Uh, still concerns about the U.S. recession. Um, then, of course, you've got the Chinese New Year right now. But in general, given how much Chinese demand can grow by, uh, and you know, we are already assuming some big declines in U.S. and European demand, but still have global demand growing by 1.3 million barrels per day. And there is a lot of upside to that number. Um, oil prices should be well above $100 this year. The question is timing of it because we still have an overhang to run down. We have refinery maintenance. So seasonally, it's against us, but still directionally. It's yeah, and, and I was looking at Summers A, now called SLB, and Halliburton, mm-hmm. Dan, and some of their margins just keep growing. I mean, they seem like they're printing money, but you think there could be better opportunities some of the smaller cap names Two of them, one's Diamond Offshore, DO, I know. Permian Resources, PR, I don't. Can you tell us who Permian Resources is and why you like them? Sure. Permian Resources, this is a, this is a Permian producer, not an oil field service company, but a producer. About a $6 billion market cap company. Uh, they formed with a, the combination of, of a public company and a big private equity company. Uh, lots of inventory out in the best basin in, in the States, the, the Permian Basin, 
Permian Resources, the name of the company. So, you know, we've got a company here at $6 billion that's big enough for someone else to buy. It's thrown off a lot of cash. The balance sheet's been repaired, a lot of inventory. And so it's the kind of name three years into a rally in the energy sector. What you want to do is you want to think about where the next doubles. Doesn't mean that that the bigger cap names aren't great places to be. They will be. I just think there's probably more upside and less risk than there has been in some of these smaller names like Permian, like a Diamond Offshore. Well. Okay, I'll go. I'll go back to you, Dan. Before I go back to Amrita, so Dan, I'll push back a little bit though, because what I hear is they can't grow these companies. Can't, it can't get capital. It can't get people. It can't get truck drivers, frac sand, whatever it is. So why would the stocks keep growing if the companies are struggling? So I'm not saying they won't grow. Sure. So I think that that the industry doesn't want to grow in this environment. Um, why? Because they've just come out of a terrible downturn. Shareholders are saying, give me the money, don't spend it. And we haven't needed a lot of incremental barrels over the last couple of years. Can they grow? Absolutely. The question is, when will they respond to a price signal? They probably will. And so why do you like the stocks? They're throwing off 10 percent free cash yields at 70 or 80 if Amrita's right and we go to 100, you know, that number goes a little bit exponential. Mm. So uh, they can grow. Right now they're giving us the money. That's just fine. Amrita, I hope to see you again in Austria, maybe the next meeting in June oh, yeah. for OPEC. What, what are they going to do? I mean, you think OPEC is happy with current Brent prices at 86, 87? I know it seems about right. I mean, look, given the fundamentals, um, again, like I said, there is still an overhang to work through. I think current prices are headed in the right direction. They are headed up. And I think OPEC will be very, very happy with their decision back in back last year when they decided to cut production uh, and everybody else uh, was kind of surprised by it. Right. And uh, that was back in October. So um, come June, I think it's going to be a pivotal point. A lot will depend on exactly where China is in their reopening phase on in our balances, by the way. We actually have OPEC bringing back some of their barrels because the market just over tightens. Um, again, that doesn't mean OPEC will necessarily mm-hmm. do that. They will probably remain cautious. They tend to remain, uh, you know, generally they're not as proactive. They need to, they tend to be reactive. Uh, but I do think that is going to be a very, very important OPEC meeting because if they don't turn back on some of these volumes, the market could really, really over tighten. And prices would soar. Absolutely. I'm Rita Sen, Dan Pickering. Really appreciate it. Interesting commentary Thank there, you. folks. Listen, and that's the that, same thing you got to remember about oil and demand is that we don't know what's going to happen with China. China could add another million or could add another two to three million. That's going to be probably the big variable for the price of oil. But that does it for us. Maybe we'll keep talking about it tomorrow because I'll be here again. We'll see you then. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.